Think of us as like a, a bucket, a mitochondrial bucket. And there have been sort of 10 major contributors to the health or disease of that mitochondrial bucket. So these drops add to this bucket and each of us have our own threshold of what we can handle before the mitochondria basically break, basically stop functioning. But ultimately, the accumulated effect of those 10 drops in the bucket are what are make or break your mitochondrial health, which is what makes or breaks your genomic health, which is what makes or breaks your contracting a, a chronic illness such as cancer. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Dr. Nasha Winters. Dr. Nasha is a licensed naturopathic doctor and a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology. She's also an author of the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Dr. Nasha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. I've loved your work and it's wonderful to be sharing today with all of your listeners. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to have you here. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I haven't heard you speak in live because when we were at the London, London Health Organization Summit, then both of our speeches were at the same time. So we couldn't it make strategically it. strategically separated us, I tell yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I heard you did great though. So that makes me very happy. Well, thanks. I'm sure you did fine as well. Uh, so uh, how did you like the London Health Optimization Summit? Yeah, you know, I tell you, they knocked it out of the ballpark on their first go. I think they were nervous about how their first big gathering of um, like-minded biohacking community from all over the world mm -hmm. would come together in London. And it was incredible. I have to say, I go to a lot of these conferences all over and um, I, I was pretty intrigued. I didn't get a stay for the whole uh, shebang because I had to hop back on a plane and head back to the U.S. for another conference. But from the moments I had there and the vibe of the people there was just incredible. I would love to hear your take as well. Yeah, it was the uh, same, same feelings uh, as you that the people were uh, really into it and I didn't hear any like negative comments about the organization, not about the speakers, not about any like the exhibitors either. So yeah, like definitely like a really good job for the first year and definitely looking forward to the next one. Exactly. And I will definitely make myself available to be there the entire time next time. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's talk about you now. So uh, if I'm not mistaken, then uh, I, 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 as I realized that you were a cancer survivor. So uh, maybe can you tell us a little bit about uh, when did you get diagnosed and uh, how did you survive? Sure. So I'm um, still on that journey. I will be 28 years out, October 21st of 2019, from a stage four ovarian cancer diagnosis that was missed for well over a year prior to them finally figuring out what the heck was going on with me. So I was um, 19, just shy of my 20th birthday. And actually by the time the official uh, diagnosis and all the data came together, I was, I was just a couple weeks into my 20th year on this planet and given less than three months to live. Um, mm -hmm. I was too far gone. My organs were in failure extremely malnourished, extremely cachectic, so metabolic wasted. Um, and it had been sort of ignored as sort of a histrionic teenage girl, you know, depressed, anxious. They just kept throwing me on more and more medications. I kept getting these crazy infections. They kept putting me on more antibiotics. And, you know, I think I was just the zebra. They weren't looking for cancer in 1991 in a 19-year-old woman. Mm. Unfortunately, today in the work I do, I see a, a, a growing number of young people diagnosed with this unfortunate uh, condition. And it's so much related to the work you and I are both passionate about. It's all about the mitochondria. Yeah. Um, and you asked how I managed to survive this. Um, for me, I was going to school in a, in a small liberal arts school that did not have a lot of resources and our library was a bit dated, mm -hmm. thankfully, because it was in that library, I was a pre-med student, and it was in that library that I stumbled across the book, the work by um, some of the research by Otto Warburg. Mm. And that made way more sense to me compared to the other things I was learning in my physiology and biochemistry courses uh, of why this could be taking place in my body. 
And I started to basically apply a metabolic approach to my own physiology at that time. Um, unbeknownst to me, well before folks like Dr. Seafried <laughs> um, had his great work kind of resurrecting these concepts and all these incredible researchers who have been mentors and colleagues of mine um, in the last decade. So it was a very lonely path there for a while. And, and I knew one of the things um, to do at that time was to basically remove sugar from my diet and start to change the stress patterns and start to understand where the toxicities in my life were coming from on all levels, not just at the treatment of the tumor, but understanding um, this concept of what we, what I call the terrain and what our colleagues might call the extracellular matrix or the cytoplasm, but basically the swimming pool in which our mitochondria are frolicking about in mm -hmm. um, is more important to the cancer process than the tumor DNA or genetics itself. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, like usually people think that cancer is something that you get when you're really old and you're sick. But uh, like you said, that the younger and younger people are getting it. And if I'm not mistaken, then cancer is the second most uh, leading cause of death in the world. And like hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of people die to it uh, every year. And uh, usually it's thought it's like genetics, but, but like you said, there's actually a lot of like metabolic aspect and the mitochondria are really central to it. So like, um, why don't you maybe explain what is uh, the metabolic approach to cancer, cancer as, as you like describe it? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to clarify on a few unfortunate statistics to bring your audience up to speed. <laughs> um, in the United States alone, 1,600 people die every oh, day. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, worldwide, the World Health Organization says that by 2030, worldwide cancer diagnoses will double. Okay, that's wow. really unfortunate. Actually, in the EU, there are 12 countries that now have cancer as the leading mm -hmm. cause of death, not number two, but now unfortunately number one. And um, a study that came out about a month ago shows that in affluent countries like the EU um, and the US, uh, cancer is now the leading cause mm. of death. Right. So it really, you know, this is one of those places you don't want to be first, unfortunately, yeah. cancer yeah. has become, you know, uh, taken that, that role, taken that status. So there's that piece. The other piece that's important, well, which is why it's kind of preluding to our conversation around the metabolic approach, is that the fastest growing cancers are colorectal cancer, brain cancer, and bloodborne cancers. Mm. So that being said, if you are under the age of 17, the leading cause of death in children is cancer, specifically uh, like leukemias, lymphomas. And where we've kind of come to a baseline sort of stabilization of them, they're spiking again faster mm. than ever. Mm. The second fastest growing is colorectal cancer under the age of 35. Oh, wow. Unheard of. Like you said, a lot of people associate cancer with aging, just natural breakdown process, which it was historically, because as we age, our mitochondria age as well, which makes us more vulnerable to all chronic illness and, and death, right? So, but now our mitochondria are damaged way earlier. And we'll come back to that here in a moment. Right. And then the I want to also ask, like, what is cancer then? Like, what's, what's happening inside yeah. of body? That's, you know, let's, totally. let's clarify that. <laughs> totally. And that's, and really quick on the third one, the third leading cause is glioblastomas, brain tumors, um, malignant brain tumors are the others also in the young population. So you can no longer blame this on aging process, uh, you know, um, just the elderly. We now have to look at other things. So when you say, what is it? What it is, is we've been looking for the past 70 so years at it being a genetic disorder. Mm -hmm. And we've been approaching it as such, and we've made very little impact on survival rates. And yet the cancer diagnoses are happening exponentially. So it's time to take a different look. And that's why people like Dr. Seafried's work and others are bringing to light that it is much more than just the gene um, or just the tumor or just the tumor cell. And so what we are learning and what I teach my patients about and what I talk about in the book is sort of like, think of us as like a, a bucket, a mitochondrial bucket. Okay. And there have been sort of 10 major contributors to the health or disease of that mitochondrial bucket just that I've had my own experience, my own understanding, my own interpretation of this with mm -hmm. um, tens of thousands of patients over almost three decades, myself included. 
And so quick droplets into that bucket would be things like our epigenetics. So the, the deck of cards you were dealt in this lifetime, but how you choose to play them via your lifestyle dietary choices, okay? Number two, your metabolic flexibility, specifically how much sugar do you consume and burn? And are you able to be a hybrid engine and burn both fat and right. sugar efficiently and effectively, or you just have the brick on the sugar burner state, which is oxidizing you very quickly and basically aging your cells from the inside out. Number three, toxicants. We are swimming in pools of toxicants. And there's an entire website that is dedicated to mitochondrial poisons. Mm -hmm. okay, you just Google the, the list of mitochondrial poisons, most of which are things that you can get over the counter, such as Tylenol, one of the mm. worst mitochondrial poisons and what do we start giving kids at young ages to suppress their fever tylenol yeah. you know and there's a lot of associations with tylenol use and leukemia um, rates in children uh, a lot of issues around mitochondrial disease in children by using just simple old tylenol yeah. and so we'll talk about fever and heat here in a moment as well but suppression of that has been something we've been doing the chemicals that we're swimming in today it's no longer a matter of if you're toxic it's how bad is it mm -hmm. right so that's a big one the fourth player is the microbiome and I love that this was covered a lot at the um, Health Optimization Summit as well. But basically, you know, we've been saying for millennia that health and disease begin in the gut. And mm. now research is basically catching up with that. <laughs> and we're giving it the credence that it has been well-deserved all along. And then we have the immune system, which is fledgling at best in us. I look at everybody's labs and there are a few things like our vitamin D levels, for instance, are very suboptimal today. Um, World War II vets, World War I vets, we could look at their blood sampling and just see at a time that their levels were much higher than they are today. Things like obesity lowers our rates, things like medications lower our vitamin D levels, the fact that we don't eat backstrap and lard anymore, um, the fact that we're terrified of fat, the fact right. that we honify and use detergents on our skin, which it takes up to three days to synthesize vitamin D in our skin. So we're washing away our vitamin D with our obsession for cleanliness. You know, these are the things that we have uh, taken us away from our health and vitality. And then we have inflammation, which is quite frankly, the driver of all chronic illness. And also the driver of metastasis, specifically in cancer. Yeah. And then we have the angiogenesis and blood circulation. And I love that yesterday, the award this year for um, the Nobel Prize went to oxygen studies, okay. <laughs> um, right? And so I love it. In fact, the last four years, they've gone to things like autophagy, which you speak very much to, circadian rhythm, which mm -hmm. is why we're sitting here in you know, blue blocker lenses and yeah. blocking our screens right now, um, into immune therapies, which is definitely my jam, specifically with mistletoe and other therapies in cancer, and now the discussion around oxygen. And so I just think it's really amazing that the massive awards in scientific research basically completely align with a metabolic approach and with biohacking your health and well-being. So I think that's a really cool side note. And so most of us are really poorly perfused, poor oxygen levels, not moving our bodies um, and have poor circulation in general. And then the last few are hormones, which I think it's uh, very obvious that we swim in hormones today as well. I think of that as a toxicant as well as a hormone disruption. So eating animals that have been fed a lot of hormones, um, glyphosate, which is an endocrine disruptor, um, plastics, my God, that's, you can't not know how bad plastics are for you at this point okay. living on the planet. And then the last two big ones, some of the most difficult to deal with are stress and circadian rhythm response. And the final one is our mental, emotional well-being. So these drops add to this bucket and each of us have our own threshold of what we can handle before the mitochondria basically break, basically stop functioning yeah. as well as they should. So it varies individually. It's why it's difficult to say one cause and effect because we're all very yeah. biochemically individual. But ultimately, the accumulated effect of those 10 drops in the bucket are what are make or break your mitochondrial health, which is what makes or breaks your genomic health, mm -hmm. which is what makes or breaks your uh, contracting a, a chronic illness such as cancer. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good overview. And you're so right in a sense that we're just bombarded by these different environmental uh, toxins and pollutants that just uh, both they weaken our immune system, but at the same time, they also spread this inflammatory you know state inside ourselves and that's just uh you know creates this environment where cancer can begin to spread because cancer itself is like this uncontrolled rapid growth of cells 
And uh, that's where your body just um, accumulates these malignant cells and tumors, etc. And you mentioned uh, one of the first researchers about this uh, when it comes to metabolic approach to cancer is like Otto Warburg. And he kind of hypothesized that cancer originates from uh, aerobic glycolysis, which is this uh, over-exaggerated burning of sugar all the time, even when you're supposed to be breathing normally. Yeah. And like you're usually when you're like not doing anything very strenuous, then your body would uh, basically burn like fatty acids and burn fat in, in a state of rest. But in cancer, uh, that state is kind of changed that it's also burning sugar when it's not supposed to. And usually you would, you know, switch back, for, back and forth when you're exercising, then you're naturally going to burn sugar. But uh, when you're resting, you should burn fat. But in a state of cancer, you're always burning sugar and uh, creating these uh, byproducts as well that cause fermentation and uh, lactic acidosis, which then promote the growth of cancer cells again. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's important for your, for your listeners to know that we all have cancer. We all have cancer cells. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what's going on in that swimming pool that those mitochondria are swimming in that determines whether those metabolic, um, you know, mishaps take root or not. Right. And, and part of that is we can definitely use diet to influence the fuel sources that the mitochondria use, but we can also use lifestyle and um, emotional, you know, like a stress response, circadian rhythm repatterning. There's a lot of tools in which we can change the behavior and the fuel efficiency and effectiveness and creation within our mitochondria, which are those, which I know you're, I'm, I'm assuming your listeners who follow you are well, uh, you know, well educated in what is mitochondria and, and the whole process here, because that's your, that's your jam. Um, but, but I think it's just so important. And one other piece that a lot of folks don't know in the mitochondriac sort of world is um, in cancer specifically, apoptosis is programmed cell death. So basically when cells are sick and broken and not functioning well, our body's job when it's working normally is to recognize those, respond to them and remove them, mm -hmm. you know, and, and help keep a busy clean house. They're sort of like our street sweepers. Right. And that process, when it shifts into that metabolic mayhem that you described earlier, when it just gets stuck in fermentation and uh, lack of oxygen and sugar burning, it stops killing those damaged cells. Yeah. And then those damaged cells get to perpetuate more damaged cells. And then the more damaged those cells and the further they uh, create new damaged cells, the more resistant they are to all therapies, all therapies, diet, lifestyle, drugs, chemo, radiation, all therapies. And so the, the key is to intervene, obviously, before there's a problem, yeah. you know, start to check people's metabolic flexibility, which you probably know this, but a study came out also within the last few months that in the US, less than 12% of Americans, and I think it's worse than this, but less than 12% are metabolically flexible. Oh, wow. That's crazy, <laughs> which means, you know, we're 78% of the time are broken, our metabolic, our mitochondria are suffocating and starving. Yeah, yeah that's so true. So um, how, how, you, how would you go about fixing that? Like, what are some of the main premises uh, of the ideas that you share of when it comes to the, the metabolic approach to cancer? Sure. Well, first, I'd like to ask people questions. I like to get a sense of how comfortable they are. Because, you know, one of the things I love about, I have a lot of folks read your book, um, you know, into autophagy, fasting, et cetera, because that's one place to start to strategize. If people tell me they freak out and get wobbly or hangry, if they go two to four hours without a meal or a snack, that's a clue that they're metabolically inflexible. So I'm going to mm. tread a little more lightly with that group. But if I have people who say I always routinely skip breakfast because I'm just not hungry, then I can push them a mm. little bit harder. Um, if people tell me they can't take, uh, go to bed without a snack, or if they have to wake up in the middle of the night to eat a snack, or they have to eat the second they hop out of bed, those are signs of metabolic inflexibility. So we have to kind of nudge them into the right direction. I also want to look at their sleep hygiene and their blue screen and EMF hygiene and, and their, do they get outdoors? Are they in nature? Do they get exposure to natural light? You know, I mean, those are things that also strongly um, determine our cellular health um, and as well as stress, like what type of a stress burden are they chronically carrying? So a lot of the things I can talk to patients about is just creating awareness. And there's in the beginning of our book, we have a questionnaire that helps people kind of 
um, of the 10 drops I talked about in the bucket, it's a 10 part questionnaire that assesses each of those drops and it helps people recognize their priority, if you will, or their biggest blind spot. And then they could go right to that chapter and read about some of the kind of why, what that could have been about, as well as hacks to change it, to restore it back to, to balance. Ultimately though, most of the things we can offer folks are free or with very yeah. little income. And that's what I think, you know, Western medicine isn't super motivated to fund studies about what you and I talk about mm -hmm. because you can't really monetize fasting. I mean, Pro Prolon is trying, but frankly, <laughs> I love Dr. Longo and his work, and it's a shit product. Excuse <laughs> me. <laughs> you know, it is, it's so synthetic and not even human. And I've had patients, I've even tried it myself. I talk about getting sick as a dog. <laughs> it's like, oh. So, you know, I am um, just on a side note, I'm creating a good quality one at this point because it's, it's I, I understand people need that crutch, hmm. but we can do better. We can do a lot better. For sure. For sure, yeah. But they had to monetize. They had to monetize as research, right? And I get that. Um, but things like a simple push for working people into just simply 13 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So finish dinner at 6 p.m., don't eat breakfast till 7. Once people can achieve that, it'll take as long as it takes to get them there. Um, then we can start to push harder because you'd be shocked at how many people can't do a simple 13-hour fast. Yeah. And studies out of MD Anderson showed that women – who had breast cancer previously, a 44,000 women study, they just asked them about their eating window time, not about what they were eating, but mm -hmm. when. Mm -hmm. And they found that the women who fasted 13 hours or more had a 70% reduction recurrence compared to the women who basically fed right. around the clock. Yeah. So we know that even that simple, cheap, free strategy <laughs> can change things drastically. Yeah. So those are some places I start to have people start to play, like kind of get to know their own bodies and then start to push it. And then you have people like, like I'm on day two now of a five day fast. I do a five day fast once a month. That's part of my long-term strategy of treating and preventing cancer, you know, with mm -hmm. my genetics, with my cancer history and with my patterns that, you know, the things that are my blind spots of the drops in the bucket this is a good strategy that's basically my free five-day-a-month chemo, if you will, yeah. <laughs> ongoing 28 years later. And um, thankfully, like a lot of the longevity researchers and whatnot, and even the, the, the excitement around the Mediterranean diet, if you really look at it, it's more about the fact that this yeah. culture fasts 200 days a year <laughs> on average. So it may actually be more of what they're not eating versus what they are eating. Yeah, yeah, it's so true, and uh, I'm I'm a huge like a uh, believer in the benefits of fasting as well. And if I ever got cancer, then I would definitely start <laughs> with something like that. And uh, it's 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 also important for just the person to re reclaim their metabolic flexibility and get out of this constant state of fermentation and glycolysis that they're in. And you know, the more metabolically deranged they are the less they can fast physiologically, like it's going to be much more harder for them. But at the same time, the more they need to do it <laughs> in order to break that cycle. And yeah, even if you don't, if you're even not unable to fast for like five days in a row, then you can still start from the daily extension of your eating window of pushing it a little bit fat back backwards or just finishing your dinner earlier. It doesn't really matter as long as you just spend more time in this fast state and allow your body to heal itself. Because, exactly. you know, that's when it goes to ketosis. That's when it goes to into deeper autophagy and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it doesn't matter where you're at. You just have to, like, keep uh, experimenting and pushing it forward. Exactly. And, that, and that's sort of what's really cool is when we look at um, conventional oncology. When you couple standard of care oncology with fasted states or having ketones in the system at the time of, say, radiation, or a PARP inhibitor, or an aromatase inhibitor, or certain chemotherapeutic agents, you will actually enhance cell kill, oh. and enhance healthy cell protection, and enhance um, quality of life, and also lower drug resistance. Okay. So those are things that when I talk with my standard of care oncology colleagues, I want them to know that it doesn't have to be an either or, that you can actually take these ancient tools They've been part of our birthright mm -hmm. and weave them in effectively with a standard of care therapy and make their jobs better, you know, make their outcomes better. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Uh, what about some of like, what about some of the dietary advice people mm -hmm. give when they are having cancer? Well, at the time of my diagnosis in 1991, there was no Dr. Google. 
There was no, you know, giant uh, um, influencer groups on Facebook to follow and tell me how to eat and how to think and how to feel. So I had to go inward. I had to depend on myself and I had to explore and um, kind of be a living laboratory of what worked and didn't work. And the only information at the time in 1991 that was good for a cancer diet, okay, mm-hmm. was a, a raw food vegan. That's what was out there, kind of Gerson raw food vegan. And because of the way I ate prior to implementing that, it was a huge step up in the right direction. I was absolute latchkey kid, standard American diet, fast food. I worked at hot dog on a stick for crying out loud all through high school. I lived on lemonade and hot dogs and cheese sticks. I mean, there was like nothing nutritional about that. That in and of itself was probably an addition to my cancer. Um, So when I switched to a vegan raw food diet, the quality of my food and my food choices and my psychology around that changed drastically. Mm-hmm. So that was a boon that really shifted things. But over time, within the first couple of years, I really couldn't get the cancer markers to come down. I really couldn't change things. I stabilized things, but I couldn't move right. the knob any further than that. And by then, I was in deep into medical school, and that's when I started learning from my professors in Chinese medicine when they would take my pulse and look at my tongue and say, you are so malnourished. Your, your, your spleen, which is your way of digesting and your neuro, your marrow and your nourishment there is incredibly weak and your chi is weak and your, you know, yen is. And so that from a Chinese medicine perspective started to get me to think because they're like, you need warm food. You cannot do any more raw cold foods. Mm -hmm. You need you also to access those enzymes that need a little bit of heat to, you know, uh, and get access to. And you need to get away from all of the grains and things that were eating up my life, you know, my uh, gut mucosa and right. causing me problems. Cause I also have a lovely collection of autoimmune conditions on top of my cancer history. So it was just like insult to injury for me. I also was depending entirely on soy, which destroyed my thyroid. Oh. I added about 60 pounds to my frame, um, made me incredibly uh, uh, depressed and anxious, a lot of patterns there. And so, and then also then turned into a frank soy allergy. So in those things of learning, I had to learn along the way and my dogma almost took my life because I kept thinking I just need to be a better vegan or better <laughs> raw fooder. Yeah. Well, then I finally, because literally labs started showing me how malnourished I was. So blood mm-hmm. tests in medical school, we did a lot of laboratory assessment. I still do today. In fact, a lot, um, is when I started realizing I am not getting a handle on this. So when I started to even just at that time, it still was another several years, five or six years where I moved from veganism into vegetarianism, but I started adding eggs and a little bit of butter and ghee and a little bit of quality dairy here and there in my diet. And it was like lights started coming on. Chemistry mm-hmm. started changing. My lab started shifting. I started feeling better and my tumor markers started coming down mm-hmm. and it wasn't really, you know, I mean, you got to remember 28 years I've been on this journey was not until 2010, which is not that long ago. Mind you diagnosed in 91, 2010 is when I kind of had my own wake up call was I was able to hold back the floodwaters with the things I was doing Mm -hmm. in supplements and IVs and diet and lifestyle and mental emotional processes. But I just couldn't kind of break through this final Mm -hmm. hurrah. And here it is. I'm guiding thousands of other patients through this process and I couldn't even get myself through it. And so where I'd been recommending vegetarianism and whatnot, I looked at my labs and and then epigenetics came on board and I realized, wow, I don't actually have the ability to digest the foods that I'm eating. I don't have the enzymes to break down all those carbs. I have HLA-DQ genes all throughout, which make me more higher risk of um, autoimmunity, cancer, et cetera, started tweaking. So it was in 2010 that my husband and I decided to go basically paleo at that Mm -hmm. time. Now I had been fasting this entire time, which was probably my saving grace. And in fact, the first few months of my diagnosis, I was so um, cachectic and I was so uh, uh, bloated with ascites, even though they Mm. pulled it liters and liters out over many, many months, I couldn't eat because of that. I had no appetite and I had no room. Mm -hmm. That's also probably what saved my life. Okay. It was a forced fast, which I didn't know about. So that was probably what kind of kept me kicking the can down the road for a while. And it wasn't until I really changed my diet based on my epigenetics, my physiology, my current state of being, my health goals, what other things I was doing along for the ride, that everything changed. Everything changed. And now at 48, I just turned 48 last week, I'm healthier now at 48 than I was at 18. 
Right. And I, 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 and, and, you know, it, it's crazy. Like I'm definitely healthier than I, healthier than I was a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Like insanely the, the shifts that have happened in my physiology. I had a lab, I had a doctor just look at my labs recently and she's like, these are the best labs I've ever seen. There's literally not a single outlier. And that's been a lifelong journey. I test, assess, and address regularly. And if something isn't working, I adjust course. So what I find is that the state of being that I'm in now, I don't even eat a ketogenic diet, right? Mm -hmm. But I show ketones. Mm. Because I'm so mad at, yeah, like I'm always, there's always some level. If Mm -hmm. I fast, you know, just one day, I can get up my ketones into the one to two, Mm -hmm. three, four, five days, or seven, eight, nine on my blood ketones. So I easily move into that hybrid state. My husband as well. Right. And that's where our, our natural setting point is. So when I hear people say, Oh, the ketogenic diet's bad or eating, you know, vegan, like what the point is, is being metabolically flexible, no matter how you get there. There are multiple ways of getting there. You can get there with exogenous ketones. You can get there with a high fat, low carb diet. You can get there with a carnivore diet. You can get there with a a vegetarian diet. I will tell you, I don't think it's very easy to get there with a vegan diet unless you're fasting a lot. And because you're already so malnourished, you're likely causing a little more insult to injury. But I do have a lot of vegans because I have a lot of Indian patients and patients around the world that are vegetarian or excuse me, vegetarians that um, we can do incredibly powerful metabolic flexibility retraining and get them into deep ketosis. Um, so it really the idea, it's not about what diet it's about the end result. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so true in the sense that, uh, I think, uh, the white or the optimal diet varies between people a lot and it depends a lot on their genetics as in the case of you and uh, definitely like, uh, it's not supposed to be very, uh, like um, confining in a sense that you don't need to be on a strict keto diet for the rest of your life or yeah. a strict uh, plant-based diet for the rest of your life. I think the optimal results come from some variation and the metabolic flexibility like that, that we talked about, that you're able to really fast easily while at the same time you're not really overburdening your system with like too many carbohydrates and too many calories, etc. So you're in this very uh, free zone almost that you're able to tap into both fuel sources, uh, whenever you choose to. Perfect. You nailed it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've also heard that uh, like Thomas Seyfried and the others have talked that cancer feeds primarily on uh, glucose and uh, glutamine. So, which is basically sugar and amino acids. So, uh, how does that fit into it? Like, would it be smart to really restrict your carbs? Or is it better to restrict all the protein that you eat? (laughs) So I love this because I've been at this for almost 30 years for myself and with tens of thousands of patients. And so I'm always, I'm the person who sits back and watch the, 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 the poo show happening and the duking it out in the arena of everyone saying vegan, carnivore, you know, keto, sugar kills, fat kills, ketones, heat cancer. Like I just sit back and laugh completely. So I sound like an ass right now, but it's true because what I will tell you is that if you come in and start using medications to starve glutamine, you will fucking die. Excuse my French, but your healthy cells, the most important amino acid for those healthy cells is glutamine. So yeah, you can definitely kill the cancer, but you're going to kill the body with it. That is the same thinking process we've been using in conventional oncology for the past 70 plus years. It isn't working, right? You have to treat the whole organism, not just the tumor, the tumor cell. So Here's the coolest strategy. And people are talking about, oh, methionine restriction, um, you know, loose serine restriction, glutamine restriction. I mean, everyone talks about, oh, you can start to feed the, the body. Um, you know, ketones can start to be as this. Guess what? Fasting. <laughs> it's that easy, you guys. Like, this is what drives me crazy is what is effective. And when we do the pulse press and when we look at how you starve cancer cells from certain nutrients, you shake it up a bit. And my mm-hmm. favorite way is, intermittent fasting, not getting into a very regimen, like every day I do 16 hours that actually the body will adapt to that. And those cancer cells will adapt to that and find a way around. That's why you shake it up. You change seasonally, you change where geographically, if you're living in say Hawaii in the winter, you're eating differently than say Colorado in the winter, right? Those are just the the things to keep in mind. Your, uh, the way and how you pulse your foods, what's local and seasonal around you naturally local and seasonal Mm -hmm. around you is likely having an impact on this as well. 
So I teach people to get back into the rhythm of nature, of seasons, of their locale, of their bodily needs, and when to shake it up on, on, on occasion. Yeah. So when I see folks that if I, and I watch labs so closely that if someone is on a strict keto, you know, genic, high fat, low carb diet, and we start to see tumor mitigate, you know, migrating again, we start to see um, lactase dehydrogenase go up in the blood levels will change. And oftentimes it's more about fasting them that mm-hmm. will shift it and turn that back off. Nice. Um, and so, but really any change you make within three days, you're changing your microbiome. Within a few days, you're changing a lot of those cell signaling pathways. And so I think that's where the research needs to be. Instead yeah. of arguing about what to eat or how to turn off yeah. mechanisms with drugs. But again, you can't monetize this. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So I'm so glad that you said it, that, you know, the cancer is always adapting to the kind of weapons you throw at it. And even if you are throwing like a ketogenic diet, then uh, it may work for a short period of time, but eventually the cancer will adapt. And I've also heard that some cancers can use some ketones if they, you know, that's the only fuel that they get, so to say. And the same applies to fasting and autophagy. Like uh, there is some research that most people aren't aware of that autophagy can actually promote like the metastasis of cancer cells because it's this hormetic stressor that essentially makes the cells stronger and it doesn't care that that there are malignant cells around. Those cells will also get stronger and adapt to the stressor. So yeah, like you said, the pulse press way of going about it is much more effective and much more smarter way of going about it because in order to starve a cancer cell, then you need to still experience energy deprivation and basically you have to starve in some way, whether you do it by starving yourself on glucose or glulamine it uh, all of those things aren't as effective as starving yourself from all nutrients but yeah. uh, you can't you, you can't really starve yourself for too long because then you'll die so how do you balance it how do you balance yourself in terms of uh, experiencing the starvation and maintaining enough of the muscle mass and maintaining your immune system functioning the key is mm-hmm. you know intermittent fasting in some shape or form and uh, you know metabolic flexibility basically <laughs> Yeah, you're nailing it. And, you know, it's interesting, a lot of the concerns around ketones feeding and whatnot. I I mean, I've I've been at this for so long that um, probably because I don't lean on one therapy. I don't lean on Mm. one target and one treatment. I have very different outcomes. So I have never seen clinically that um, ketones directly be feeding or glutamine would directly be feeding or, you know, any of these things. So a lot of the studies, the concerns are actually more in cell line studies and they don't have an entire dynamic body wrapped around it with a functioning liver and other uh, factors playing in. It's really difficult to do studies like this that have so many points coming in at it. But I think if we keep it simple and we come back to the fact of creation of metabolic flexibility and adaptability in our cells in general, that is how we overcome this. And I think you really... Um, explained that very, very well um, about how you just have to kind of be one step ahead and changing it yeah. up. And that's where, you know, whenever we get habitual with anything, I, I, there's an interesting, you know, I heard stories about Steve Jobs and I actually know someone who was part of his healthcare team and he got, you know, he had a pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer that we know I mean, what is the job of the pancreas? It's so much about insulin and blood sugar regulation. And so it's very, like, I, I sort of say like pancreatic cancer is like diabetes on crack. You know, right. it's, <laughs> it's really a metabolic process. And yet there's mm-hmm. some studies showing, oh, it could use ketones, it could use blah, blah. But the reality is, is it's still like you think about just the common sense of the organ itself. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a man who was pretty known for his OCD behaviors. He just had like black turtlenecks. So he didn't have to think about what to wear every day. He also jumped onto apple juice fasting and carrot oh, fasting. Wow. For year, like he took a relatively um, benign type of of, process of pancreatic cancer, which most people can easily survive and can have like surgical resection and go on. He basically fed it into more explosive condition. And I talk about that because he was so habitual with doing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And we do need routine and steadiness in our life. That's really important. But we also never ate the same. Like when people take mushroom extracts, for instance, mm-hmm. or probiotics, never do we eat that exact, like I had that much lactobacillus every single day for six months, or mm-hmm. that particular lion's mane was available to me in you know, foraging every day for six months. We don't have that in our facility. Everything was very adaptable and diverse. So we brought in, you know, more metabolically or microbiome diversity we have, the more resilient we are. And so I think that that's the key is that 
um, folks need to take a multi, like a systems approach to right. this For sure. in a huge way. Yeah. So in the case of Steve Jobs, do you think it was uh, the overproduction of uh, glycolysis or, and the, like the fermentation or was it something else? Like he was basically eating like a very high carb diet. Only to, carb diet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's probably like related to the excess insulin and uh, blood sugar probably. Well, and then the other part of his bucket is this man worked like he didn't sleep. Right. So when you have two nights of bad sleep, your insulin growth factor shoots through the roof. So I'm sure his IGF-1 and mTOR pathways were a hot mess. Yeah. And then he was pretty intense, you know, and he, he had quite a temper. So I'm imagining there were stress components and mental emotional components to this. I loved reading his biography. It was pretty autobiography. Yeah. It was pretty powerful. Um, and then look at his life all around technologies. I would have loved to look at his toxic, toxicant profile. He worked in actually building, you know, he was down in his fingers in yeah. the system. So he probably had massive cadmium toxicity and other yeah. metals toxicity from that. And then think about all the EMFs and blue light he was exposed sure. to. His sure. poor mitochondria had no chance. <laughs> this man came in, he burned his light super bright and it burned out really quickly. That's and right. so I think that it's, we can't ever say, oh, it's one thing. It's just cause he ate apples every day. You know, it wasn't that this guy had a collection of drops in his bucket yeah. that put a lot of pressure on the system. Yeah. For sure. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the IGF-1 and mTOR. So uh, those, those things are also associated with like cancer and uh, tumors because they essentially promote uh, growth of all cells and, uh, they promote muscle growth you know they also promote uh, fat cell growth and uh, cancer cell growth so uh, some people think that in order to avoid overactivation of mTOR then they need to like avoid or restrict their protein and uh, yeah basically go on a, like a plant-based diet but uh, what are your thoughts on that and uh, what kind of research have you seen well it's interesting because you know again in normal metabolic processes when you have healthy non-cancerous cells you need mTOR, you need IGF-1, you need to recover and restore and rebuild muscle and get, maintain muscle and gain muscle. Those are things you do need to do, right? Mm -hmm. But when you have an aberrant metabolic process, when, the, when all bets are off and you move into a very different state in cancer, the cancer cell is, does not behave at all like mm -hmm. the, the healthy cell, like a normal cell. You have to, as you said, sort of like take a moment to press and push against some of those metabolic pathways. Mm -hmm. So Again, fasting is very effective for this. There are pharmaceuticals like metformin, um, in, uh, berberine, you know, other things yeah. along those lines. Fat, uh, exercising in a fasted state. I love doing HIIT training in a fasted state for folks that can really change it. Um, to One of the fastest ways to lower IGF-1 is a three to five day fast once a month. Um, pretty profound. I can get it back into normal range within two to three months, no problem. Um, the mTOR inhibiting drugs out there like Everolimus and all these others, they are so stinking toxic. They destroy people's livers. They kill them pretty much outright. The side effects are atrocious. It's like, why don't you employ some of these other natural therapies? And my folks who do employ some fasting or some therapies like that with those medications fare far better, right? So there's that piece. But again, the, the seduction of looking at a single target and treating it or starving it is dangerous in my mind. I think that's what gets us in trouble. So again, you want to look at the kind of, as much as we want to go down the rabbit hole and look at it more myopically, we also need to at the same time kind of rise above it and look at the big playing field and mm -hmm. see what else is contributing to the, the cytoplasm, to the terrain that is signaling um, those growth factor patterns in a, tr in a tremendous way. So, you know, IGF-1 is stimulated by cortisol, mm -hmm. by estrogen, and by sugar. So if I have a patient who's eating a perfect, perfect, low carb ketogenic diet, their ketones are gorgeous, their macronutrient cal calculations are perfection, and they're still cancering like a mofo and their IGF-1 is off the charts, I look at what's sleep been doing. Okay, what's your stress level? What's your estrogen level? Are you still like, drinking out of plastic? Are you still eating your meat out of cellophane plastic wrappers? I mean, things like that, you start to look for other triggers that are impacting that pathway. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of things that I get to do with individuals is because I get that, that opportunity to both dive deep into their labs or epigenetics or tissue genomics, um, and then take the bird's eye view of what's going on in the rest of you, the rest of the life around all of this. I get to see patterns really beautifully and help the, the patients or the doctors working with the patients to see the patterns. And then we can adjust the course. And that's the place is that there isn't a way. So when you ask those questions, it's hard for me to just go yes or yeah. no or black yeah. or white. But I'm hoping that we're kind of creating a, an awareness and a discussion to get people thinking 
that it's in one way super complicated and in another way incredibly yeah. simple. Yeah. And it can be both simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. Like there is no black and white answer or yes or no. And that's what people want to hear. And that's what people like uh, try to answer as well. Try to give this like very definitive answer. But the truth is that even even when it comes to just weight loss or trying to optimize your diet for health, even in that case, the answer isn't black and white. It's very, you know, yes and maybe, uh, you know, depends and et cetera, et cetera. It's very context dependent and, you know, not to mention cancer and other diseases. So it's always very changing. And yeah. uh, what I wanted to add, like from my own personal experience, that when it comes to mTOR and ITF1, then the most important variable that affects these levels is actually the eating frequency, so to say. So if yes. you are eating a high eating frequency diet, like three, three times a day, five times a day with snacks, then you're still keeping your IGF-1 levels high, even if you're eating like a very low protein diet or a plant-based diet or either a ketogenic diet. Exactly. The, the way you lower IGF-1 and mTOR is through the eating frequency. And uh, I myself eat like a pretty high, higher protein diet with plenty of amino acids from animal protein, etc. But my IGF-1 levels are like 100, which is bottom, which is like the yeah. bottom, but lowest, lowest of the lowest, and uh, literally you can't even go any lower because it'd be dangerous. So uh, yeah, like it comes to show that the fasting is actually yeah one of the easiest and one of the most effective ways of managing all these uh, pathways related to like excessive growth and uh, mass accumulation. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And it is, it's so funny. Like I think when they looked at that MD Anderson study for the women, mm -hmm. right. For the breast cancer, they didn't care what they ate. They didn't ask them at all. They could have been eating ho-hos and ding-dongs all day. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it was exactly as you stated. It was like the timing that gave themselves a break, which is where insulin and insulin growth, like all of those can kind of find their way back into more of a, of a baseline versus a crazy explosion. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's really, um, underutilized these discussions and again because you can't monetize them it's not very interesting to the powers that be but to mm -hmm. folks like you and i and to the patients who get the different outcomes um who were otherwise cast off into the into the field to die um they would say otherwise <laughs> that this is really important and not that difficult to achieve yeah that's for sure uh what do you think about uh these uh like polyphenols and flavonoids that also help that have been shown to like uh, fight these malignancies and uh, stimulate these similar pathways as fasting does. Gorgeous. Well, given that I'm a naturopathic doctor who also has a, a doctorate in oriental medicine and studied Ayurveda for 13 years, um, I'm very, very interested in botanicals and uh, food as medicine. My husband's a, a nutritional biochemist and an epigenetics expert and an endocannabinoid expert. Oh, wow. So we are, this is what we do for fun in our household is you should get him on to talk about endocannabinoids in this whole process because it's pretty mm -hmm. powerful. Um, but there's so much um, evidence from, again, ancient times where we've been using Chinese medicine formulations and a lot of the formulas that are very powerful in cancer and anti-inflammatory and uh, inhibiting angiogenesis are very, very high in polyphenols. And polyphenols are also the crucial, crucial food or uh, food constituent that upregulates our P53 tumor suppressor gene. Mm -hmm. And so when I see people also go purely carnivore, that might be fine and dandy in other ways, but in the cancer population, yeah. I, I'm the person who does the testing. So I see the outcomes and it does not fare well, right? Yeah. You can do it for a while, just like you can be a vegan for a while, but it starts to change outcomes pretty quickly. And I believe a lot of that is in the realms of the polyphenols. Um, and, you know, I think with somebody with extreme gut dysbiosis issues and autoimmunity, I think a carnivore diet short term can be very, very powerful, but that is not what I'd ever recommend for a patient undergoing a cancering process. Yeah. Um, I want to bring in, you know, my approach is very plant dense because I want those cofactors. I want those, um, I want the apigenin and the elagic acid, you know, the elagics you find in the dark skin berries, the, uh, um, apigenin you find in your celery and your parsley. Um, these are mm, extremely yeah. strong anti-cancer agents. The broccoli sprouts, the sulforaphanes, one of the most powerful HDAC inhibitors, epigenetic supporters, um, hormone modulators. But the polyphenols are just, they're crucial to the protection of our genome. Yeah. 
-hmm. and to the induction of apoptosis and the uh, tumor suppressing abilities that they offer. So having that colorful varietal uh, above the ground, low glycemic vegetables, you make sure you're doing like purple leafy red um, lettuce and um, going with your purple cauliflowers and, you know, those types of things, the richer that purple and red in your foods, the higher the polyphenol content as well. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And, and, um, and so you can get a lot of that even just in botanicals. You can do that. I have patients to keep their glycemic load down. If they are trying to do a ketogenic diet, we'll have to make a lot of pestos. So take like the purple basil is a beautiful way to make it beautiful and then make it with very high fat and then eating tablespoons of that a day. Like it's Mm -hmm. such low glycemic load, but you're getting a humongous polyphenol and terpenoid hit with that. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. I I love it as well. And, uh, I add some polyphenols uh, into my diet, like all, basically every day, and awesome. uh, do like some sort of a blend with different different herbs and uh, spices, like turmeric, ginger, and uh, ginseng, and <laughs> mix it together. Even you can use the seasoning for just you know any type of food. Absolutely, and you know in the U.S., it's everyone kind of likes their bland diet. They like their salt and pepper, and that's about <laughs> it. You know, in India, they eat an average of a quarter cup a day of turmeric. <laughs> you know, it's mixed into everything, and so. Um, you know, spice of life is really key. And one of my sort of heroes in the field of cancer um, uh, research is Dr. Bharat Argaval, who was at MD Anderson for years. He's no longer there, but he has a book called Healing Spices. And it's an entire like compendium, you know, collection of uh, anti-inflammatory polyphenol rich um, foods that are well documented to support in the cancer and other chronic illness processes. Mm, that's yeah. good. Um, what does your own diet look nowadays? Like uh, you've been like keeping the cancer at bay and uh, everything seems to be going great because I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever say that you ever had cancer because you're so vibrant and full of energy. So, so what, what, what do you eat uh, nowadays? Well, and it changes. It changes seasonally. And I normally live in Colorado, but the last few months I've been in California and my husband and I will be down in Mexico for the winter. Mm-hmm. We, we, I, for me, I found that one of the best ways to feed my mitochondria is sunlight. So I follow the sun now. So I understand I'm used to make fun of snowbirds. I have now become one. So I move with the warmth and the sea. And I like <laughs> to be in my mountains for a certain charge. And I like to be at the ocean for a certain charge. So it's like the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. But right now, the end of summer, it's been hot here in Southern California. Um, I definitely keep it a little bit cooler, a lot more fish. I do tend to, I tend to not eat breakfast. I just don't have hunger for that. Um, and I tend to have a lot, a lot more vegetable matter in the summer months. Um, I do tend to be a bit more kind of keto in the winter. I don't do grains. Um, I don't do legumes every once in a while. I might take a bite of some refried beans that look amazing down in Mexico that were made with lard or every once I might have some sushi, but the sugar in the sushi really gets to me in the, in the rice. Um, if it was just plain rice, I could probably get away with it, but I like to do sashimi anyway. Um, so we do just eat pretty much vegetables and protein and very simple and very nutrient dense with the vegetables, probably nine to 12 cups a day on average for me, and then whatever lean protein. And I get in a little bit of red meat now because I've had problems with keeping my ferritin, my iron storage up, which is really opposite for a lot of cancer patients. They tend to have hemochromatosis and iron overload. Mine has been in the single digits since childhood. So it's always challenging. And you can imagine how much worse that got as a vegan (laughs) vegetarian. I even did liver injections for a while, but they became unavailable. So when I started to incorporate um, a little bit of red meat into my diet, that changed. I'm finally in the double digits for the first time in almost 50 years, right? So it's pretty cool. Um, and then I just sort of go with what's seasonal and local and keep it very simple. So I'm a big foodie. I love quality. It has to be clean. It has to be organic. I couldn't, once I gave up grains, I was able to eat dairy again for the first time in 15 years. Mm. So I do love really good ghee, butter, really, really good quality cheese. I just don't eat much of it um, Mm -hmm. for, because my IGF-1 tends to go up really easily on that. I have a couple snips that make cheese and my blood sugar kind of go wonky, but I actually have a, you know, I can actually eat a pint of raspberries and it doesn't do anything to my blood sugars. My husband eats two and it spikes his blood sugars. Oh, yeah. So I can still do a lot of polyphenol rich berries um, and things like that uh, in my diet when I desire it. So it's simple and kind of boring, but uh, it works for me. And so I really, I love it. And when we cook for friends and family, they're always shocked of, of how good the food is, how good it tastes. We use a ton of seasoning, herbs, spices, and we do a ton of fat, a ton, a ton of fat. <laughs> 
And I wouldn't say it's like eating for a ketogenic diet. We just love our olive oil. I mean, it's like we probably go through a liter of olive oil in our household every four days. Mm, wow. so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about exercise? Uh, you know, some some uh, high intensity exercise can also f- promote like fermentation and glycolysis. So, uh, <laughs> does it give you cancer then? So it's ironic because in uh, in my younger years, I was a big volleyball player. In fact, I got scholarships for college and was really active, and that was both my gift and my curse. Um, it's why I could eat that crappy diet I did for so long, but then it also started to oxidize me. So in times when I got super heavy with my vegetarian diet, I was trying to work it off. So I was working on an hour and a half, two hours every day, you know, five to seven days a week. And I was gaining, gaining, gaining weight and more and more inflammation, more and more problems with my um, hormones. And once I basically quit working out like that and just moved to sort of play. So like running, jumping, playing in parks, you know, going to a workout in the park with a friend who did like 20 minutes of sort of high intensity interval training. It was mostly around playing and skipping and jumping and push-ups and climbing up and down trees. That shifted things in my chemistry when it became more natural to nature, to my life and to background. If I over-exercise, I actually gain weight and my IGF-1 goes up. Mm-hmm. So I keep it pretty simple. I walk a lot, probably I don't know, five miles or more a day. Um, I stand up paddleboard every day in the winter when I'm down in Mexico. Um, I take my dogs on hikes almost every day when I'm in Colorado. And then I don't really go to a gym anymore. It seems like walking into a gym, I'd gain a pound. Like it was just <laughs> ridiculous. So if I'm in nature, I think there's that component. And if I'm mixing it up more in play, that's why I love Daryl um, Edwards and his work out there of kind of primal play, that resonates much more with my chemistry. And I'll tell you some of the sickest patients. I lived in Durango, Colorado, where we have some of the most amazing athletes in the world that live and train there. They're also some of the sickest. So we have the spectrum of being on a couch or over-exercising causes a a significant amount of oxidative stress and definitely can impact blood sugar, cortisol, estrogen levels, everything that goes into that mitochondrial bucket. So when I see folks who, especially my worst, are the vegan athletes, oh, their labs (laughs) are hot, stinking mess, and trying to convince them to change, to reel it in, to upgrade their diet. It's, I, I think part of it's because they're a little bit mentally ill at this point because they're so malnourished and their brain right. is not getting what it needs. Honestly, it sounds harsh, but when you look at their labs and their SNPs and whatnot, yeah. it's right there for you. It's not a dogma. Yeah. It's not a judgment. It's data. So, yeah. yeah. That's true. <laughs> so, Like I said, I fast. I do um, at least a three-day fast a month. Okay. Um, sometimes longer. Um, if I'm traveling a lot, which I do right now, I do a little bit longer because I feel like it really reboots me from all of the stress of travel and being in different time zones and whatnot. It really suits my condition. Mm. Well, that's yeah. good. And uh, glad that it works <laughs> and uh, it seems to be working. Um, yeah, it's been great talking with you. And uh, w- before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and your book? Sure. So The Metabolic Approach to Cancer is the name of of my book that I co-authored with uh, the nutritionist who was part of my office and co-facilitated retreats with me for years, uh, Jess Higgins-Kelly. She and I are actually working right now on a very specific cancer-centric nutritional book. So it helps people really know exactly what to eat when for certain cancer treatments, for certain um, phases of their condition, et cetera, and based on their SNPs and their labs, very, very directed. So it's not so generalized. It's going to be very, very clinical. I've also got a book coming out with a group of colleagues on mistletoe this next year as well. So look for me on my social media realms of Instagram and Facebook under Dr. Nasha Inc., D-R-N-A-S-H-A, comma, Inc., or under The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. That's also, I've got uh, mm-hmm. Instagrams and Facebooks on that. And then my website, drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com has loads and loads of free downloads, media, what to do, when, you know, a little handout of what to do when you're first diagnosed with cancer, things like that, as well as eventually we'll have this great interview um, mm-hmm. uploaded on there and shared with the masses. But that's where I also have a newsletter. I keep people up to date with research um, information going on, amazing conferences like what just happened in London that can help people really find their tribe and help them reinstill the natural level of metabolic flexibility we mm-hmm. all came here to, to use. Yeah, that's awesome. And we're going to leave all the links in the show notes and people can check it out. Uh, So my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Wow, that's a great question. (laughs) You know what? 
I believe for me, because this is like looking back now, you know, almost 30 years, 28 years, I was really in a dark place, very dark place. And in fact, for me, cancer was a changing point that let me decide that I wanted to live. Okay. So I wish I'd had a bit more gratitude at that early phase because I saw it as sort of like a curse and why me? Mm-hmm. Now, 20 years beyond that, I definitely see it as the gift that it was, but I, I think it would have made the process a lot more gentle had I been a little bit more gentle with myself and had more of appreciation and gratitude of what my body was trying to tell me, what she was trying to wake me up to. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's really significant and really also under utilized in our world. Oh, well, well, yeah, that's really powerful in the sense that, you know, uh, people tend to think, yeah, like, why me? <laughs> or why does it happen to me? And what, what, what's this curse? But everything can be a lesson and everything can be something that you win from, yeah. in a sense. So you, you just have to change your perspective and uh, be more grateful for everything that happens. <laughs> so thanks for sharing with that. Thank you so much, Sian. This has been incredible. Yeah, and I'm uh, looking forward to meeting you in person, maybe on some future conference. <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely, for sure. <laughs> Great. So thanks for coming and uh, let's stay in touch. Definitely. All the best. All right. That's it for this episode of the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.